Get to the core of Korean insights with Korea Pro's exclusive Seoul event series. Join us for gatherings that bring you face to face with key opinion leaders, journalists, and experts on South Korean affairs for dinner, drinks, and more. Engage in deep discussions on political, economic, and social issues at special venues across Seoul. From dinners with Korea Pro editors to insightful conversations with renowned guests, each event promises a unique blend of expertise and networking. Immerse yourself in the pulse of Korea. Register now at events.koreapro.org. News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today this recording is done on Tuesday, the 27th of February, 2024. And that noise you hear in the background is my colleague and fellow Dutchie, Ifang Bremer. It's good to keep in touch with the Dutch. Welcome back on the show, Ifang. Thank you very much for having me. How does it feel? It feels great. Excellent. All right. Well, we have a few things to, uh, to talk about today. The first thing uh, that I'm interested to know about is that the Twitter account North Korean Archives and Library, which I should point out is a non-official it's not an official North Korean government account, but they're quoting sources that the Korean Association of Social Scientists, I think that's the right name, CAS, K-A-S-S, has invited members of exchange associations in Europe to get ready to visit North Korea in small groups for Kim Il-sung's birthday this April. Now, of course, this has already become a topic of hot, dis- hot discussion. What do you think? Well, that's unconfirmed, I guess. <laughs> exactly. It, well, Let's say that it's based on good information and that the people have received invitations. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to get visas and they're going to go. So, I mean, it fits into the current situation that North Korea seems to be opening up to more and more groups of people, very selective groups of people. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case at all. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, in these kind of situations, it's not the the foreign ministry or the Korean Association of Social Scientists that makes the final call on who gets to come in. It's people above them in the the state security department. So we'll see uh, who actually gets let in and who doesn't. But with the recent trip of 100 Russian tourists there, maybe they will start letting in people. I mean, there's a lot of noise at the moment, right? Mm. You have a lot of people who are in touch with some DPRK officials, maybe people from embassies in other countries say, you know, I, I think April, for example, right? Well, I've been saying that for a year. I always thought that the anniversary of Kim Il-sung's birthday is a good time to open the doors again. Yeah, so the latest rumor is, you know, April will be a bigger opening for people to co- come back into North Korea. I have to see it first. Yep. And as we've seen the past couple of months, any opening is, yeah, for very selective groups. Right. These are not, like, I think that most people agree that, you know, a big pre-pandemic opening of North Korea. Oh, that looks unlikely. Yeah, it looks yeah. unlikely. Yeah. But as well as these exchange uh, or friendship groups that have been encouraged to send in applications for small visits, we've also been hearing rumors that some uh, embassies have been told to start sending groups into, I don't know, check out the status of the buildings that they used to be in until four years ago and maybe prepare the way to reopen the embassy. So Yeah, well, we know that the Germans are in North Korea right now. They're there right now, okay. Yeah, so the Chinese embassy in Pyongyang posted a well, short article on their website mm. that their ambassador was meeting with two German officials ah, okay. in the embassy in Pyongyang. So 
it seems that the Germans are back yep. to check out the premises of the em- of their of their diplomatic mission there. Right. It could be a short stay. Definitely. Yeah. It's it's literally just in and out. Ah. Check what's the status of things. Perhaps perhaps pay some rent mm. as due, but it's not a full fledged uh, reopening of their diplomatic mission yet. Okay. All right. Well, it's something to keep an eye on for the next week or two. And what, where are we now? We're at late February, and Kim Il Sung's birthday is mid-April, so there's still six weeks to go. Lots could happen between now and then. Okay. Another thing. Tomorrow, when this the day that this podcast goes out, it'll be Wednesday, the twenty eighth of February, which will be the five year anniversary of the failure of the talks at Hanoi, the big summit between Kim Il Sung, Kim Jong Un, and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, that failed. So five years has already gone by tomorrow. You were, I think, still a, a student back then, weren't you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I honestly, it seems very long time ago. Right. And we don't really talk much about it in the office, I can tell. Right. <laughs> it's not really a topic. It, it's it's one of those moments It's like, yeah, it happened. But there's so much happening right now that we're not really looking back at the past. That's kind of the vibe that I'm getting in the office. Yeah. But we also know, I mean, we were talking when Kim Jong-un came out with his speech at the end of last year about how uh, he's not interested in talking to South Korea anymore. I mean, this is part of the long-term fallout of the failure at Hanoi, in a sense, isn't it? Or at least that's how it's interpreted by some people. And when I talked to uh, Sieg Hecker and Bob Carlin, they saw the, the failure at Hanoi as being that point at which Kim Jong-un kind of realized, okay, it's not going to work out with America and with South Korea. Got to find another way. So uh, five years on, here we are. Yeah, it does seem like a turning point, uh, yeah. looking back at it, yeah. Uh, another anniversary this week. The big one is the uh, is Thursday, the 29th of February. That is Leap Day. So it's the 12th year anniversary of the Leap Day Agreement. That was uh, one where the United States said it would provide substantial food aid in return for North Korea agreeing to a moratorium on uranium enrichment and missile testing and also a return of the IAEA inspectors to Yongbyon, uh, which didn't happen. And then that was going to, in turn, lead to a resumption of the Six-party talks. Do you remember those, the six-party talks? Yes. They were a thing once. So this this deal, the Leap Day deal, it lasted less than six weeks because in early March, sorry, mid-March, uh, the North Koreans said that they would launch a satellite to commemorate the 100th birthday of Kim Il-sung. Uh, and that satellite launch was on the 6th of April. It didn't go into orbit, but basically that was when the U.S. said, okay, we're, we're stopping uh, uh, the food, or we're suspending the food aid, and the Leap Day deal died. So that's already 12 years ago this week. So a lot's been going on. Indeed, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so you um, you wrote a story very recently which is relevant about the, what we were talking about earlier, the door opening, about North Korea keeping the door shut to aid groups. So tell us about that. Well, when the news came out that North Korea uh, allowed 100 Russian tourists into the country, I was surprised because I cover human rights and humanitarian affairs for NK News. Mm-hmm. So I keep a keep a close eye on the activities of UNICEF, the WHO, but also private organizations that provide aid to North Korea. Mm-hmm. And I know from speaking with them the past couple of years that they're so frustrated that no staff has been allowed in. Basically, I think the last staff members of international organizations left DPRK March 2021, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And ever since... There have been no foreign observers checking out the humanitarian status of the country. So right, they have some local staff who have been liaising via Zoom calls, but there'll be no foreigners going in having a look. Correct. So, mm-hmm. for example, an organization like UNICEF relies on North Korean personnel in the country, but they have no way of 
you know, actually observing what's happening yep. uh, with their own eyes. And that's a big problem because they're providing aid uh, that can be food, can be medical supplies, and they want to make sure that those end up at the right places. And they also want to have their own assessment of how many people need help in North Korea right now because yep. we frankly only base that estimate on extrapolations of um, past surveys, mm -hmm. right? So it's very problematic. Uh, so what I did is I uh, reached out to the big international organizations that uh, used to operate inside the country and asked them, do you have any idea when you're going back? Mm -hmm. And the answer was no. So I spoke with UNICEF. UNICEF told me that they still don't have a date of when their staff can return. Yeah. And they said uh, that they continue to urge our government partners in the DPRK to facilitate the easiest, uh, the earliest possible return. The same goes for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. They also do not have any access to the DPRK since 2020 is what they told me. And the same goes for the International Federation of the Red Cross, mm. which is an ICRC partner, but is a separate organization. Right. Uh, they, too, remain shut out of North Korea. Now, I also reached out to the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, but I did not get any, get any reply from them. But I know that they're also eager to return. Yeah. So these are the big groups that used to go into North Korea to provide aid. What they've been doing the past couple of years is send containers of aid mm -hmm. and then rely on North Korea to distribute, distribute yeah. aid. But what to me is interesting is basically this contrast of North Korea allowing Russian tourists to come in. Yeah, yeah that's going to be pretty <laughs> annoying. If you're sitting there saying, you know, we want to go in and make our assessment of yeah. the needs and you see that there's 100 relatively wealthy Russians going in there doing some skiing at Marshallyong and then going back again, having a great time and putting post on Russian social media about it, that must be pretty frustrating. It must, must be incredibly frustrating, yeah. 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 Um, and, and also this shows the priorities of North Korea mm -hmm. very clearly. Yeah, I spoke to, uh, to Frodo Mauring yesterday about that for a, an interview which will be released next week. He was the, the former resident coordinator for all the UN, six UN agencies in North Korea from late 2019 until late last year. Uh, and he, he seemed quite sanguine about it, didn't seem to get too upset about uh, why these priorities were seemingly misaligned. But he did say that he saw it as North Korea practicing diplomacy by giving favoritism to its, uh, its friends and allies, mainly China and Russia. So this is a way of keeping favor with them. Uh, and he expects that aid agencies will be able to go in soon, although he wasn't able to give any kind of date either. So I tried to press him and say, what about by the middle of this year? And he said, well, we'll wait and see. So, yeah, no... No uh, firm idea on when. Yeah, but I'm, I also hear more up pessimistic assessments. Oh. Some people have told me who, who do not want to be mm -hmm. uh, cited just yet is that they think, you know, maybe uh, North Korea is now quite happy with the status quo. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have these annoying foreigners coming in, uh, writing up reports on like how much hunger is spreading inside the country. Yeah. Right, and that is something that uh, Kim Jong Un would very much value mm -hmm. to keep it that way. So it could well be the case, and that's just my my reading of the situation that North Korea is trying to you know get the free goods, but not get the negative uh. <laughs> uh, side effects with it, which is the people who actually come inside of the country to have a critical assessment of the situation, and that would be very 
problematic. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And 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 bad for the average North Korean citizen. Definitely, because yeah. we have to remember that the all the assessments that have been made by international organizations are mm-hmm. quite bad. So UNICEF stated that as was it last month that mm-hmm. the DPRK's medical clinics they lack medicine and knowledge to treat malnutrition and childhood illnesses wow. on a nationwide level. Mm. And mind you, that's based on um, information they got from their government partners. So yep. that is uh, relate to them from North Korean medical personnel. Yep. So that's North Korea actually admitting to, you know, we have problems. And at the same time, you know, not <laughs> allowing people back in is, 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 is a very strange situation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, very worrisome. And letting in tourists, which seems quite frivolous and trivial. Yeah, it, it's a, a very stark juxtaposition of different priorities there. Yeah. I, I'll be keeping a close eye on the situation and I'll be in touch with the aid organizations to ask, you know, what, do you have any, any uh, prospective return date? Yeah. Because these groups also actually a lot of times have, prop- they don't own properties, but they rent properties there. Mm-hmm. And well, they also need to pay rent. Yeah. And that's another reason why North Korea might actually uh-huh. allow some people to come in to maybe pay some debts yep. that have been building up over the years. But... I would be surprised if they would go beyond that and actually, you know, the like, big teams of doctors or, mm. or groups back in. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, for telling us that and keeping uh, keep an update on it. I encourage our listeners to check out Ifang's stories if you're interested in humanitarian and human rights issues. Uh, Ifang follows a lot of them, so check them out on nknews.org. And then after this break, I will have an interview with Rudiger Frank from uh, from Vienna, who's talking about some of his thoughts about the latest line and uh, and policies out of North Korea. So stay tuned for that. Thanks very much, Yifeng. Thank you for having me. Keeping up with South Korea's fast-paced developments just got easier. Welcome to the Korea Pro podcast, your weekly briefing on the stories that matter. Hosts Jongmin Kim and John Lee dissect topics from diplomacy to technology, ensuring you're always informed. Our episodes are a must for professionals in and out of Seoul. Subscribe on your preferred platform and elevate your understanding of Korean affairs. Korea Pro Podcast, where clarity meets depth. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the long interview of the show. And joining me via Zoom from Vienna, Austria, is Professor Rudiger Frank, who was last on the podcast on episode 167, when we discussed German unification and its relevance to Korea. Dr. Rudiger Frank is Professor of East Asian Economy and Society and Head of the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of Vienna. Dr. Frank spent a semester at Kim Il-sung University in 1991 and 1992, a very interesting time. And you can find him on Twitter at rfrankvienna, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Welcome back on the show, Rudiger. Hello, Jacko. Good to be back. Rudiger, in December last year, you published a piece on 38 North called North Korea's De-Risking Strategy and Its Implications. Briefly, what is de-risking and how does North Korea use it as a strategy? Well, that's my attempt to make a broader sense of all these uh, things that have been happening in the past, let's say, one or two years. Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, de-risking means that North Korea is undoing a whole series of risks that they have taken 
since the end of the first Cold War, which is now over after roughly 30 years. Mm -hmm. And this is how I interpret all these singular events that we are certainly also going to talk about today. Right. Okay. All right. So it's undoing risks that it had previously taken. Okay. Now, when you wrote this piece, uh, or when this piece was published last December, it was at the time when North Korea had been closing many of its embassies and consular offices around the world, reducing the total number of diplomatic missions to around 46. And now I've talked with Chad O'Carroll and other NK News colleagues about reasons for this and what it all means. But I want to hear from you specifically about this in the context of this idea of de-risking. How does closing diplomatic missions de-risk North Korea? I mean, just to start with the details, uh, obviously, I have no idea why precisely they closed these particular embassies and why at that time. Mm. And this is why I find it so useful having these meta theories, because they are much more reliable in a, in a, in a sense. Otherwise, we are speculating too much. In this case, if you think about an embassy as such, which means North Korea is sending people abroad. They are very reluctant doing so, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. These people are based abroad for a longer period of time at a, at a particular space. They become an easier target for whoever wants to target them, either through surveillance or by trying to convince them to probably leave the country, switch sides. This has happened quite a lot. Yeah. And of course, yeah, this is also, uh, well, probably exposing these people to information that they otherwise would not have access to. It's been a long standing thing amongst North Korea watchers to assume that people who have been abroad, remember, this has been even said for Kim Jong Un, come back with a different mindset and, you know, have a different perspective on their country. And by reducing the number of these people who are exposed to that risk, there's always a minimum number who have to do that anyway, but mm -hmm. you try to minimize that, right? And uh, by doing so, the North Koreans are reducing risk on many fronts. And on the other side, usually you take a risk because you expect something in return or there is some something that will make up for the risk, you know? And this return is also diminishing. North Korea mm -hmm. has started its massive diplomatic initiative, opening new embassies elsewhere, also inviting foreigners into the country at a time when it really had to, and now it doesn't have to anymore. And this, yeah. uh, I think, makes a lot of sense. But the argument against that, Rudiger, is that uh, these people who, who work in the overseas missions, these are the most highly trusted people. These are the people who are closest mm -hmm. to the, the inner circle. I mean, they're not inner circle themselves, but they're close to it. And they're the ones who would have the most to lose if the North Korean system were to change or collapse or something like that. Exactly. Like Taeyong Ho, you mean? Yes. And he left, right? And what about the uh, gentleman from the Italian embassy? And going back a longer period of time, what about Wang Zhangyop? So right, yeah, but over over the last two and a half decades, we can we can name pretty much all the high level people uh, yeah. who have come out there because there've been so few of them. Well, I mean, I I, I wonder what the percentage is though. Uh, if you mm. look at I don't know a couple of hundred people being abroad, and how many of them have actually left, and we don't know about. Many mm -hmm. of those who have left, because obviously the US and South Korea do not always uh, publicize that immediately. We don't know who many of these people have been recruited as informants, uh, but nevertheless remained in North Korea. So there is mm -hmm. kind of a dark number, as we say in German in this regard. No, I think it's actually a pretty remarkable per percentage. Okay. Uh, so, but why do you think that the de-risking in a, uh, a sort of a human resources angle is a more persuasive reason for closing uh, embassies and consulates than, say, the economic difficulties, which we've always known about. 
First of all, it's a timing. Uh, North Korea has been through greater economic difficulties before, I believe, both in terms of actual facts that we have, but also in terms of the geoeconomic situation. So mm -hmm. right now, when things are developing in a positive way for North Korea, it's trade relations and uh, access to finance and access to markets in China and Russia is actually improving. So closing the embassies out of financial constraints right now makes less sense to me. That's point number one. Point number two, the costs of embassies, that's really a drop in the bucket, even of the North Korean budget. Also, as you know, of course, uh, from interviews with people who worked at embassies, these embassies are actually supposed to generate money. So they mm. are not always a cost factor. They are actually a little bit even of a of a of an a little enterprise producing gains either through illegal or not so legal means so the cost argument doesn't really work for me at all it's just the 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 amount is not enough the timing is not enough mm -hmm. and probably it's even an income that north korea is giving up by closing these embassies okay so uh, what uh, changes have happened to the international environment that make the world a riskier place for north korea to exist and be active in I don't think it makes the world a riskier place. It has always been a risky place. What has changed is North Korea's evaluation of the uh, trade-off, mm. like the need to take that risk. And North Korea's, uh, the pressure on North Korea to open up has become less. The risk has remained the same, at least from the perspective of the regime. As you know, they have always been extremely reluctant to let their people be in touch with the outside world. I'm mm. just reading accounts of the uh, North Koreans who got married to uh, East German women in the 1950s and 60s. Yep. And even back then, you know, you read lots about this paranoia. So this hasn't changed. What has changed is North Korea's perception of having to take this risk in exchange for something. And that's obviously the new Cold War. It's, mm. the, it's the effective death of sanctions. I mean, they are still there, but they hardly ever really did bite as much as wanted by those who issued them. But now, I mean, it, it's just over uh, China and Russia. Although they officially still deny that, of course, they are still willing to cooperate with North Korea. And North Korea doesn't really need that much, right? I mean, we've been making fun of their efforts at an independent economy because it never really was independent. But we should also be honest and say that they have been highly independent. What they need in terms of external cooperation and input is not that much. Mm. And this is what they are getting now. So why take the risk if the trade-off isn't there? Yeah, so these uh, these enhanced relations that, that Pyongyang now has with Beijing and Moscow, uh, do you also see that as uh, furthering that mission to de-risk itself? I guess so. It's taking pressure from Kim Jong-un and his leadership to explore riskier opportunities to get what he needs, which is mm -hmm. uh, inputs of technology, uh, know-how, inputs of capital, markets. You, you remember how they opened all these special economic zones yeah. So they opened all these special economic zones to invite foreign investment. You remember they started doing that in 1993, right? So that's right with, with the, the right in Sunbong. Right. They even went as far as doing something totally crazy, the Kaesong Industrial Zone. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I've been there three times. Yeah. Uh, first time in 2004, when they just had the groundbreaking ceremony last time in 2007, when I could see that thing operational. It was just absolutely insane what mm. they were exposing their people to and on a massive scale, 50,000 women on a daily basis, one or 2,000 South Koreans or whatever. I mean, this was, this was definitely something where they tried to get 
something that they now get from the Chinese. You know, they mm. can have Chinese investment. They can send their people to China to make money. They can get smaller amounts of money for uh, building new factories. They already assemble these smartphones and everything. And there's so much that we don't know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so in terms of uh, yeah, looking at North Korea's relations with with Russia and with China at the moment, and, and you, you've already mentioned this idea of being in a, a new Cold War, would you call these relations, a sort of a triangular relation, a, a firm alliance, or is it something looser, like a, a temporary coincidental confluence of interests? It's a marriage of convenience. I say that with certainty because we do have a long historical evidence of North Korea dealing with uh, foreigners. Mm -hmm. And I don't really think they like or trust anybody. They just dislike them on different scales. I think I told you last time, when I went to North Korea in 1991, one of the first words I learned was uh, denom, which is a not very nice term for Chinese. And that was back then. So wow. North Korea always had, as we know from countless publications, a very difficult relationship with its mm. two big neighbors, Russia, or Soviet Union at, at some time, and China. But they need them. So no, it's not an alliance. And I think I also argued that at least part of the utility of the nuclear program for North Korea is to maintain its independence within mm. this triangular relationship, where very obviously they are the junior partner. But mm -hmm. if you look at this Sino-Soviet rift in the late 1950s and how North Korea was then able to extract concessions from both sides, it's a very skillful way of tail wagging the dog or actually two big dogs. And I'm pretty sure they are going to continue this. And mm -hmm. of course, we also need to say that people in Beijing and Moscow, they are not dumb. They are pretty much aware of that. So yeah. I think marriage of convenience is is a good way to describe this. Now, you, you've already mentioned uh, Rajin Sonbong back in the 1990s and the, uh, the Kaesong Industrial Complex. What are some other big risks that Pyongyang took in the era after the end of the first Cold War in the early 1990s? Well, in a way, it's almost everything that they've done, starting mm. with after the end of or at the height of the famine, letting all these international organizations in. I remember a presentation or a publication from the World Food Program or FAO. I always mix these two up anyway. One of these international food aid organizations that were proud having made 450 field visits per year and having access to almost 90% of all counties in North Korea. I mean, just think about the massive amount of intelligence that has been flowing out of this and reaching various quarters. Think Wait, about it might not be obvious to all of our listeners why that's a risk. Why is that a risk, having people going around your country and seeing things? Well, because people go around your country and see things, which is not something that you typically do in North Korea, right? Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. they, earned, they earned the title Hermit Kingdom, for sure. And as you probably see in each and every discussion you have on North Korea, sooner or later, rather sooner, actually, you reach a point when you say, yeah, but we don't have enough information and we don't know. Mm. All this this whining about uh, di diplomats having to leave Pyongyang and not and waiting actually to come back. It's mainly also because not not because everyone enjoys living in Pyongyang. It's more about mm. that. We want to know what's going on there. You know, we have a we have much less information now than we had before. So access by foreigners is a major risk. Uh -huh. And the North Koreans have been super reluctant to grant that. You remember how the um, 1989 World Festival of Youth and Students had been celebrated as such a great exception where yeah. thousands of foreigners were there. 
but it turned out to be a very unique measure and we also saw how north korea was totally overwhelmed right yeah yeah in that context we have western tourists uh, you know up to five or six thousand a year i remember in 2012 in april when i was there they let so many foreigners in they didn't even have enough hotels you could clearly mm. see that they were overwhelmed couldn't really deal with them we know that uh, many of these uh, foreign tourists western tourists in particular turned out to be either actual or will want to be journalists uh, we have no idea how many of them have reported to three-letter agencies here and there mm. of course again the north koreans aren't really stupid there have been many negative reports about North Korea, quote unquote, secretly filmed, although it's actually not that secret. As you know, you can, you could, I should say, film and take photos relatively openly in North Korea as a tourist uh, with a few ex exceptions. So this would be one of the areas like access to foreigners. The other one is, of course, the um, cooperation with the South Koreans, starting with the June 2000 summit when Kim Dae-jung visited North Korea. Mm. Yes, of course it was. I, I was. I happened to be in Seoul at that time in June 2000. And I remember, of course, what a great propaganda win that was for North Korea, and that's actually true. So mm. when you know South Koreans discovered that Kim Jong Un actually speaks Korean and other ridiculous stuff like that, kind of undoing a bit of their own propaganda. But yeah. we overlooked the fact that, of course, the same thing happened on this on the North Korean side. So Kim Dae Jung, you know, was a very an older gentleman, you know, and uh, smiled and behaved kindly. And, you know, many North Koreans for the first time had seen a South Korean that would not correspond with the image that typically has been projected about South Korea. We had the Kaesong and, of course, Kumgangsan tourism. Yeah. Right? Remember, Kumgang tourism had been started also in the late 90s when Chong Joo-yong visited and then the project developed out of this. And I, was it one or two million South Koreans who traveled? I to can recall. Mm. I mean, yes, of course, it has been isolated, but still they were interacting with North Koreans who have families and brains and, you know, mm. who keep thinking. And Kaesong, of course, uh, was a totally different story. It didn't last for very long. As we know, in 2008, after the uh, fatal killing of Pak Wanza, the uh, female tourist who was shot, at the coast yeah, of the East After that, the tourism thing was over. So I think Kaesong yeah. was just open for a relatively short period of time. But Kaesong is a regular city, you know, and having hundreds of South Koreans in their colorful clothes and, you know, chit-chatting and uh, looking affluent and whatnot on the streets must have been a shock for North Koreans. So this kind of infiltration, ideological infiltration in an implicit way uh, has been a great risk. Then again, we already mentioned about the North Koreans being sent abroad, but we should probably also talk about this other chapter of economic reform in North Korea. Yes, it's not exactly reform, but it was kind of a pre-stage of a reform, right? Where they had their marketization measures, the July measures of 2002, and then this socialist enterprise management system thing and all these experiments with a double plan and the expansion of the farmers markets and giving kind of re reducing farming teams and giving more agency to those people. We did talk over the past years a lot over the so-called Donzu or Masters of Money. Mm. When you were in North Korea, you could see all these smaller, small-sized enterprises basically operating in the transportation business, etc. So all these things also created a big risk for the ideology and for the stability of the system. Okay, let me ask you about the uh, reform of the economy that you, you've just mentioned. As you said in your article, North Korea, when it did do some reform of the economy, it did so half-heartedly and reluctantly. 
And I just wonder why. Why was that only done half-heartedly and reluctantly? Why not do a, a full-blown reform of the economy in a similar way to, I don't know, uh, China or Vietnam? Well, obviously, because they didn't really want to. One of the major, one of the distinctive differences between these, let's, let's call it re reforms, uh, just for the sake of simplicity, of these reforms in North Korea and reforms in China and Vietnam is that they have never been announced by the leader. Mm. Uh, for China, you know, we have this speech by D Deng Xiaoping in December 1978 uh, and many others that followed. Uh, in Vietnam, we have even a term, you know, this Doi Moi, Doi Moi. Uh, movement. In North Korea, there was never anything like, like that. They, they just did these things. And we as scholars then tried to figure out what it was. Even the July 2002 measures we heard about through sources from Japan. So mm -hmm. it's not like Kim Jong-il at that time or later Kim Jong-un would step up like he did just a couple of weeks ago at a major party meeting and say, okay, guys, things have changed. So now we are embarking on a reform policy. It was more implicit. And that is an indicator that they never really wanted to embrace that as a new strategic line. It seems to have been a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. I should add that I have nevertheless been very positive about these reforms because I believe in something that you can call path dependency. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it doesn't really matter what the intention is. Mm. Whether you are really all out into reforms or whether you just reluctantly do that, but you do create new realities. And these new realities, they can, in a way, uh, become the source for the next change to reality. And then, in hindsight, you have a, a chain of such events which will lead into actual reforms. So I was still quite positive about these measures, but nevertheless, the North Korean leadership never really embraced that. With Kim Jong-il, I had the impression he actually did. Mm. There is this article he wrote in January 2001 when he came closest to actually announcing in the Nodong Shinmun such a reform policy where he talked about things are not like in the 50s and 60s and, you know, we should embrace this new environment and react to it and find new ways of dealing with it. But that's where he stopped. And his son definitely has never really shown any indication that he's into actual reforms. Well, in, given that, I mean, as you say, the leadership doesn't seem to be interested in it. Why take these risks at all, even though half-heartedly and reluctantly? Well, if the alternative is to just see your economy collapse and then understand, if, if you understand that most of these uprisings that happened in other countries, mm -hmm. that the North Koreans, of course, have been following very closely, we talk about, you know, the, the end of the uh, First Cold War, collapse of the socialist system they were all uh, related to economic unhappiness right mm -hmm. in a way i mean the of course the narrative that we are being told now in particular here in eastern europe is that it was all about freedom and the political liberties which is of course correct but i can confirm as a former east german that for most people who do not really care that much about politics as long as the state just leaves them alone it mm -hmm. was really material incentives and also the Tiananmen massacre or Tiananmen mm. incident or however you like to call it. That was preceded by uh, about 20% in inflation all of a sudden, which mm. people didn't really uh, couldn't really deal with. So I think there was just this economic pressure uh, on the North Korean side that the leadership reacted to. And probably they were also tempted, you know thinking, yeah. ah, maybe we can we can play a little with this and we can still keep it under control. 
of course, as a government, you want to have more cash. The more cash you have, the more yeah. you can spend on whatever, including a weapons program and whatnot. So yeah, I think it makes sense from their perspective. Okay, so what, what ultimately made North Korea change its mind about these risks? Is that something to do with the failure at Hanoi in February 2019, which I note is almost five years ago already? Yeah, that's um, you take that from the article by Bob Harlan and Sick Hacker. This is the one point I do not fully agree with. It's too linear in my view. I don't think it's like Hanoi failed and therefore the North Koreans made a 180 degree turn. No, I don't think so. I think mm. they just tried. It didn't work. Of course, they were unhappy. They had expected more. No, no, no. I, I think it's more like the Chinese-US rivalry becoming more intense. Mm. This is what happened in the past years. And in a way, we we tend to overlook that because now, of course, it's Russia, US that's dominating the headlines in the news and, you know, calling each other names and making accusations and so on. But this doesn't mean that the uh, Beijing Washington problem is gone. And it's a fundamental problem. In terms of uh, international relations theory, I'm a convinced uh, neo-realist or realist. So I do believe in power and interests. And mm. I believe that all these talks about negotiations and hopes that you can talk people into changing their mind, that might work on an interpersonal basis, but certainly not on a state basis, because interests are interests. And very obviously, a country like China with that size, with that potential, and with that attitude, that's important, with the attitude of, you know, having been globing, uh, little leading global power, and wanting to go back to that situation. This cannot happen without challenging the existing hegemon, and that's the United States. So this conflict was in the making for a long time. Mm. I'm on record having talked about this already in 2014 or something at a World Economic Forum event in Manila, I think it, it, mm. it was. So, and the harsher this confrontation became between China and the US, it's a process, right? It builds yeah. up gradually. Uh, the easier it was for North Korea. And then the whole Russian invasion in Ukraine acted more as a catalyst to something that has already been in the making. And now, of course, it has become stronger, more massive. And yeah, it just kind of sped up things a little bit. But in principle, no, it was not Hanoi. Definitely not. Okay. Uh, going back to risk and, and the riskiness of things, you've, you've given some examples like the inter-Korean economic projects, Kumgang Tourism and, and Kaesong Industrial Complex and things like that. And I'm just wondering, are these experiments always forever risky or is, are they just more risky at the beginning and then the risk tails away after a while and and then is there another risk in reining these policies back or or switching them to another more restrictive policy is that a separate risk i think i mean the first point i i don't think they they become less risky i think the longer these projects exist mm -hmm. the riskier they become i think risk if you like accumulates in that sense mm. Why is that so? Because it just means, I mean, an, an extra day means an extra day of an opportunity for a North Korean to think about something he didn't think or about getting in touch with a South Korean or something, right? Or becoming infected, if to use North Korean terminology, with mm. an anti-socialist mindset. Um, the important part, the interesting part is really the second part of your question. How do people react to the government taking these things back. And yes. this is something that I'm struggling with. All my own experience and let's say common sense would suggest that this is extremely difficult. 
you can but it's like putting the proverbial genie back into the bottle isn't it absolutely you can deny people something for a long time and if they never had a taste of it yeah. i mean my favorite example when i talk to my students is the smartphone right uh, i think you and i jacko we are both old enough to yeah. know a life without a smartphone yeah frankly we did live and i don't think i missed it when i was a teenager simply because i didn't know that it doesn't it, it even existed right yeah but yeah. now <laughs> take away a smartphone from from a 20 year old and their life will be over uh, i mean take it away from me my life will be severely impacted and i think yeah. we really underestimate that um there are of course conditions under which you can totally reset things these conditions are typically major catastrophes like wars if you look at if you look at uh, countries where systems have been switched from one system to another i'm talking about qualitative changes start with um, Russia in 1917 or 1918. It mm. was after a major war, right? It was World yeah. War One going on. And think about uh, all these socialist satellite states emerging in Europe. It was after World War Two. In North Korea, it was after occupation by the Japanese. In China, it was uh, after Japanese occupation and a civil war. So typically, you need these very drastic mm. events kind of destroying everything on which uh, when you can then have a reset for North Korea we might argue that the pandemic definitely has provided an opportunity mm. and in fact you as you say in your article Kim Jong-un called it a, a golden opportunity didn't he yes he did and he also called the sanctions a golden op opportunity because of course that's the more long-term existing justification for mm -hmm. having radical changes that affect everyday life of people that would make them theoretically very unhappy about the government, you know, like mm. taking away an opportunity that it had previously given to them. If you can yeah. blame it either on a virus mm. or on the United States, which in the North Korean mindset is pretty much the same thing, right. then um, you can try to delegate a little bit of responsibility. That's fine. Which is why I am totally flabbergasted by this recent move of undoing this more than 50 years of reunification policy because I, ha I really have no idea how they want to sell that to their population so anyway we still have to see in how far the north koreans will really accept that it's crystal yeah. clear they will i mean we, we all know what kind of country that is we know how people are conditioned they will not immediately rise up and march on kim il-sung square and demand mm. that this or that is is undone right but we also know that they are no idiots. I mean, these are people like you and me. They yeah. probably have been educated in a sense that they rather keep their opinion to themselves more than we are used to. They are, you know, they are aware of the re repressive system of the state that will punish them very, very harshly um, if they say the wrong thing. But it doesn't mean that they, they do not think. And Koreans, if you look at South Korea, the history of this democratization movement, the fight against uh, the dictatorship of John Doo-hwan and before that Park Chung-hee, Koreans are able to even risk their own life for the sake of something they believe in. You know, this self-immolation is one example. It's a very extreme way. So I'm still waiting to see whether something similar is going to happen in North Korea or whether they are going to accept all these changes silently as they have done before. What are the, the implications of de-risking for the Donju, the, the newly emerged middle class in North Korea? They, they would obviously stand to, to lose a lot from lack of international trade and international contact, wouldn't they? Uh, theoretically, yes, except that if this can be replaced by just different business opportunities, 
this time with the Russians and the Chinese, then mm. maybe they will not be as unhappy as we assume. I mean, it's not like previously all the money that Donju made was based on trade with the United States and South Korea. Probably for a very, very few of them, these Western contacts mattered, but it has always been China. Maybe they are now doing even better because Russia, I think, is definitely intensifying its bilateral relations with North Korea, including economic relationship. So there might even be new business opportunities. And these people are flexible, these Donju. I mean, that's why they are Donju. They are more ambitious. They are more ruthless. They are better connected. They are more flexible than the average North Korean. That's why they rise to become successful entrepreneurs. And uh, these people tend to adjust to changing conditions relatively quickly, as long as Kim Jong-un is clever enough to still give them another opportunity to make money. So mm. I'm not so concerned about them. Okay. Because of this de-risking strategy, do you expect that North Korea is going to welcome foreign visitors at the same level that it did before the pandemic and from the same countries? Will we once again soon see diplomats, NGO workers and tourists traveling all over North Korea? To a certain degree, yes. I think as previously, it is uh, would be unrealistic to think this will go down to zero or remain at the current very, very low level. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I am very pessimistic about reaching the pre-pandemic level or let's say the pre-de-risking level. Yeah. I think we will end up somewhere in not even in the middle, but more in the lower third of that. So diplomats will be allowed to return. Even Western tourism, I think, will happen again, but most likely not on the same scale. Uh, I would be very surprised if the North Koreans would would do that, if they would, in a way, let the opportunity pass to put a lid on something that was uh, threatening to get out of control. Hmm. And do you think that there'll be uh, more inclination to perhaps bring in tourists from favored countries like Russia and China? Yes, of course. I mean, that's yeah. pretty obvious, right? Uh, you remember right. everyone, it was actually quite clear when Kim, Kim Jong-un, was it? Yeah, I think it was Kim Jong-un talking about some pretty high numbers of tourists. Was it 1 million or something that they wanted to bring in? And yeah. everyone was like, oh my God. And of course, since we are ourselves and we always think everything that's said is about us, yep. we thought, wow, 1 million Europeans or Westerners. But no, of course, that's uh, more like Chinese, probably yeah. Japanese. Now, of course, this Japanese, uh, I would f forget about. And there are so many people in China anyway. So yes, mm. Chinese, uh, all these new tourism resorts that have been in the making, Wonsan, Kalma, but also, I think for a couple of years, I passed by unfinished hotel complexes uh, higher up north along the coast of uh, northern Hamgyong. Uh, in the area of uh, Chongjin, you know, they have the, the very beautiful scenery there. Yes, I think it's going to be mainly Chinese and now Russians, you know, that this first tourism group entering in February is actually from Russia and mm -hmm. allegedly it's already booked out. Here still we talk about just hundreds. I think the real bulk of tourism will come from China. Right. Now, Rudiger, moving on, when you wrote your first article on de-risking published on December 13th, did you imagine that Kim Jong-un would give the speech that he did on December the 31st call about calling an end to the dream of peaceful Korean unification? No, this was, I mean, I, I, as I wrote in December, it was crystal clear that this closing of the embassies is just one piece of a puzzle that is much bigger and there are more things of kind of de-risking events or attempts to follow, but that he would take this step. No, I didn't see it. And I'm still trying to understand uh, what it actually means because it's, uh, yeah. to me, frankly, I've been following North Korea for 
34 years now, which in a mm -hmm. way is shocking if I just think about it, makes yeah. me old. But I, I would say it's the single most dramatic announcement by the leadership that I have ever heard in those uh, 34 years, honestly. Okay, well, yeah, let's get into that. So uh, about a month after your first piece on January the 11th, the second piece was published at 38 North entitled North Korea's New Unification Policy Implications and Pitfalls. And hopefully we'll add a, a link to that in the show notes. Uh, we've already talked a bit on other uh, previous podcast episodes about how significant this new policy line is. Now, uh, listeners and, and NK news readers will be aware already that there are two broad camps and one sees the new line as something serious, a real break from the past, uh, and the others see it merely as a change in tactics, not in strategy, and that the major goal is to influence people in South Korea, especially the progressives. And it seems like you fall in the first of the two camps. Is that correct? Um, yes and no. Um, I think much of the debate, and I find that slightly regrettable, to be honest, but I understand it, of course. Most of the debate has been focusing on the question of war and peace. And um, on that question, like, is North Korea now going to invade South Korea next week or something? Mm. I'm, more, I'm more actually with Thomas Schaefer, who said that, no, this is more of the same. So this um, aggressive tone, we heard that before. I do not see any new reason why North Korea should now uh, suddenly invade South Korea. But on the other hand, it has, of course, become easier. To me, however, the significant breakthrough, something that has never existed before, is the uh, new definition of the nation, the new definition of the relationship with South Korea. Also, in a way, this very, very open way to, yeah, I, I wouldn't say criticize, but undo things that are so closely related with Kim uh, Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, yes. which is a major step for someone like Kim Jong-un. So, I, I, this speech is not just about one topic, right? So on, mm -hmm. on this side, on the unification nationalism side, I'm definitely in the camp of saying, wow, this is super significant. It's impossible to uh, overestimate that. On the yeah. war and peace issue, I'm a bit more relaxed, although that's, of course, a very dangerous thing to do. I mean, you don't want to be the one who says, don't, don't worry, and then the next day a war yeah. breaks out. And in fact, I do believe it made a war between North and South Korea easier. That's for sure. Mm. Okay, has Kim Jong-un given up on unification completely or just peaceful unification? He has not given up on unification. He never said so. I have no idea where people get this from. He did say that the uh, formula to achieve unification is completely wrong. And this formula is going is basically, I mean, it's not North Korea. If you know, usually they have one idea and then this idea is repeated and, uh, you know, there are mm. twists and turns added to it and then it becomes bigger and bigger. But the original idea was that by Kim Il-sung in 1972, the three principles, and that is unification needs to be peaceful. Yeah. Unification needs to happen based on some pan-Korean nationalism. And unification has to happen without the interference of foreign forces. I think the buzzwords are Uri Minsokiri, like by our nation itself, and right. independence and peaceful, right? These uh, three principles. And this is what Kim Jong-un has given up. Obviously, he didn't really expand too much on no outside interference because it wouldn't make much sense. But he attacked the idea of peacefulness. He said, no, mm -hmm. this is now a foreign country, which, of course, makes it theoretically, at least, easier to wage a war against, against the South Koreans. It's not like cutting your own flesh because they are not defined as your own flesh anymore. And uh, the other principle, um, this by our nation itself, it's kind of falling into the same category. 
reunification is not an internal affair anymore. It's more about uh, North Korea reclaiming part of its territory that is theirs. In a way, it's a bit of a similarity to what the People's Republic of China says about the Republic of China on Taiwan. It's a kind of a, a province that a renegade province that needs to be brought back into into the Reich, I almost said. So that's the new attitude. Yeah. What, what risk is Kim Jong-un possibly avoiding by taking on this new strategy? Yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean, the, the obvious answer would be interaction with South Korea is dangerous. And mm. I think everyone who has been following North Korea understands that it, it's on so many levels. What uh, bothers me is that this doesn't really explain this new policy. I mean, the North Koreans could have yeah. just stopped talking to the South Koreans anyway. They well, could they have, have more or less. They did. And uh, they could have continued that and they could yeah. have stopped anything silently. You know, why making a big deal about it? Why making it a new policy? Why making it a new policy line? That I don't understand. And frankly, the only explanation I have, but this is, I mean, it's uh, a speculation based on the speculation. So I hope you will for forgive me. The uh -huh. only explanation I have is that Kim Jong-un is trying to build his own legitimacy, a legitimacy as a leader in his own right, yeah. by starting a number of new policies, new projects, new initiatives, and also by disconnecting himself from previous policies, sometimes in a harsh way. You know, if you if you want to raise your profile, you sometimes in politics, you do that by criticizing your predecessors and saying, I'm mm -hmm. different. This is the only explanation I have. And of course, why would he do that? Well, I guess first, probably out of personal reasons, you know, if he believes that he's great, then of course, he also wants everybody else to believe that. So I, I think he hates the idea that he's only the grandson. Talk to people in similar situations, like heirs of larger enterprises or daughters and sons uh, of ce celebrities, they usually tell you, oh, you know, I really suffer from being seen only as the son or daughter of this or this. I want to be my myself, you know, uh, probably it might be something like this. I have no idea. I'm not this private uh, psychologist. The other thing, but if, obviously, but if, that, if that's the case, I mean, that's there's certainly yeah. a risk involved there in moving his legitimacy away from that uh, that legacy yeah. from his father and grandfather, the Pectu bloodline. And w one Absolutely. wonders what what would be uh, the basis for his new legitimacy? Well, I, I think the reason why he is taking that risk is obviously that he thinks the uh, legitimacy transferred from Kim Il-sung through Kim Jong-il through Kim Jong-un to one of his children, like mm. right now his, his daughter uh, has, of course, been in the news a lot, is yeah. now too weak. It's like adding water to wine and then eventually there's hardly any taste of wine left, you know. Um, so probably he thinks that in order to guarantee the continuation of his family line, he actually needs to strengthen his own legitimacy as a leader so that he can then pass it on more powerfully to one of his offspring. That is the reason why I think he is taking that risk in addition to just personal ambition, which of course we can also never exclude because at the end of the day, he's a human being like like all of us. But th that idea of, of dilution of the Bechtel bloodline with each succeeding generation, that seems like a... Uh... Uh, a new one for me. And uh, you know, if you look at Korean tradition, Korea for many years had had kings. And I, I don't think that that was a, an idea that, that each successive king had a weaker relationship to the original ancestor that founded the dynasty. That, that seems like a new idea to me. 
I don't think the comparison of the North Korean leadership system with a monarchy makes a lot of sense. Okay. Because uh, in a monarchy, you have clearly laid out rules for that. There is a clear an, an order of su succession, right? Mm. And it never worked like that. I mean, Kim, Kim Jong-il, okay, he was the oldest son, but Kim Jong-un wasn't. He was the third son. Also, I do not uh, recall seeing a single North Korean publication calling Kim Jong-il the eldest son of Kim Il-sung or calling Kim Jong-un the son of Kim Jong-il. Yes, they talk about the Pact to bloodline, but this is much too unspecific. It leaves, it's very am ambiguous. Uh, there mm. is no clearly laid out rule how it's going to happen. It's more like Im implicit. And in a monarchy, that's not the case, right? Look at yeah. uh, Britain. We know exactly uh, who is going to succeed whom, who is number whatever in the order of succession. This is not the case in North Korea. No, I think this is not a very good comparison. It doesn't really help as much. Mm, okay. Now, if I recall correctly, you've always been skeptical about the success of a third generation leadership succession in North Korea, haven't you? And I still am um, in a way that's related to one of your previous questions. Mm. Are people going to buy it? Yes or no? Now, as a matter of fact, Kim Jong-un is still in power after having taken over in late 2011. I thought at that time that he would be primus inter pares, a first amongst equals in a more mm. collective form of leadership. That was wrong. I'm still having my doubts whether the North Korean population really buys that as they were into following Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. And probably this attempt now by Kim Jong-un of developing his own independent legitimacy might even be a response to something that he knows, but we don't, mm. uh, which is the uh, the mood amongst his population. I mean, he does receive all these reports from his uh, intelligence services. So probably he it's even a reaction to something that we so far haven't observed. You know, like one of these signs saying, do not dump your garbage here. It's usually places where people dump garbage, right? Yeah. So probably this reaction of his is an indicator of something that we are not yet aware of. But again, this is highly speculative. I have to admit that. So what are your thoughts on the possibility of a future collective leadership in North Korea? And would this be more or less risky than the current sort of leadership in one person? Yes, de definitely. I mean, it would be it would be a substantial change. And as we know, again, we have empirical evidence on that in numerous countries. As soon as you start changing things fundamentally, people get into this change mood and they want more and more and more. And then you have this uh, path dependency where one event leads to another. And eventually it's like an avalanche where a small piece of snow turns into something that is absolutely unstoppable, uncontrollable, unpredictable. Mm. And this, of course, can happen in North Korea. I mean, the obvious thing is uh, collective leadership. How stable will it be, right? I mean, they have no established collective. It's not like in, in the Soviet Union where you had your Politburo effectively really being in, in charge and powerful where it was just about finding a new secretary general. So you do have ambitious people that will might be fighting over power and different factions. It's Korea at the end of the day. They like to have their factionalism and they're fighting amongst each other. So it, it could definitely lead to a destabilization, which is why actually on a side note, I believe many in the North Korean leadership do support this one person leadership model mm. because they benefit from a stability of the current system and mm. they don't want to see it collapse. That's definitely not true for everybody, but I believe there is also this backing up of Kim Jong-un, even if 
these educated, ambitious, powerful people at the very top might think he's there might be a better option, but then on the other hand, this would be riskier. So I guess um, so far it's like many people are benefiting from the current system, so they rather go for mm. stability in a system they know rather than inst possible instability in a system they don't know. Now, you predicted in your second article at 38 North that South Korea and especially conservative political forces in South Korea, such as those aligned with President Yoon Song-yeol, will benefit more than Kim Jong-un intended from this new policy about unification and, and the Korean nation. In fact, you describe it in your article as Kim Jong-un giving a gift to South Korea. Uh, why and how? Oh, 100%. Again, this is, of course, me being uh, influenced by my uh, experience of being German. And when, when I grew up, the term Germany was completely owned by West Germany. The word Deutschland, which is German for Germany, was not used in East Germany as such. Of course, it was the German Democratic Republic. There is nothing you could do about it. But mm -hmm. for example, when you say today there is a football match, Deutschland against whatever country, it was clear to everyone it must be West Germany because East Germany never used this uh, term. Also, in my article that in East Germany, they stopped singing the national anthem already in the late 1960s because it said something about Germany, United Fatherland. In 1974, there was a constitutional change eliminating all goals for unification from the constitution. In a way, the East Germans back then did what Kim Jong-un just did a couple of uh, weeks ago. Uh, basically renouncing the idea of a unified nation. At the same time, West Germany kept it. So they owned the narrative, you know, they mm. were the sole owner of Germany. And when I, when I, I mean, I've been asked about this comparison between Germany and Korea, I don't know how many million times. Yeah. And I usually start with a long list of differences. And now mm. one of the differences is gone. It's not wow. like these two cases have become more similar, but until very recently, both North Korea and South Korea claimed ownership of the nation. Mm. They competed. It, both had based on that concepts for national unification and so these concepts would compete in the german case i think i also write that in my article the unification treaty between east germany and west germany was negotiated within eight weeks and it's a document mm. of a thousand pages and obviously it's very far-reaching yeah i can't imagine how you can negotiate such a document anywhere else of such a significance in that yes. case Apart from the difference in power, of course, it was also the total absence of a concept on the East German side. So the West yeah. Germans presented their ideas and all the East German delegation could say yes or no, but they couldn't reply with a concept of their own for anything because they had stopped thinking. And I'm talking about the whole country from the leadership to the elite to the very bottom of the population. Apart from, oh, unification means we can travel and we will have Deutschmark. People had no actual idea how it's going to look like. There was only a discussion starting. We have this evidence of 1989 and early 1990 where intellectuals were suddenly really excited and discussing potential ways towards unification and probably, you know, creating something new. But for, forget about it. Meanwhile, you know, events were proceeding mm. very quick. And now North Korea has made the same mistake. They have given up ownership of this and basically they leave this whole idea to the south koreans we still have to see how that turns out in north korea to be honest whether the north korean population will be slightly disappointed no. by kim jong-un giving up this idea of you know korea is one and 
sumptuously and you know all this this tapestry like land and yes. 18 million fellow countrymen and so on but then now the south koreans can do that and they can propagate that we do know that south korean propaganda or information is reaching north korea we know that from kim jong-un himself who keeps complaining about it so right now it will not be from now on it will not just be consumerism and being cool and you know music and k-pop and k-drama it will also be if the south koreans play this card smartly it will also be you know the nation korea is one etc being another powerful strong propaganda message from south korea towards the north do you think that by kim jong-un cancelling all those messages of pan-nationalism is he in effect I'm thinking about what kind of message he's sending to South Korea. Is he, in effect, implicitly calling for an uprising and a regime change in South Korea, even if that may not be realistic? Um, you, one could read this into into some of his statements because he still says about what what he said was you can't trust any South Korean government, right? Be it progressive or uh, conservative. He did not really say you cannot trust the South Korean people. So I think he still likes to make this differentiation. Always reminds me of Stalin, who said the Hitlers come and go, but the German people remain to justify how he can cooperate with East Germany. Mm. But he was not really very detailed on that, and he didn't really expand on that. But theoretically, this option exists. Uh, but definitely, Kim Jong-un said with this political elite, and we don't know how he defines that, like how deep that actually goes. Is it just the president or just the top 10 or just the top 10,000 or whatever with them it makes no sense to cooperate which by the way is absolutely correct to be honest I mean I never really understood how people could interpret the sunshine policy as uh, appeasement or something sunshine policy is just another way of aggressively changing North Korea just not by force but by heat if you remember this fable by Aesop yeah it's not about laying down and waiting for the mercy of the North Koreans it was just about really enforcing regime change upon them by different means. So one could even understand the argument. But yeah, I, again, we are still at the beginning of this process. And that's why okay. I said I'm still struggling with understanding what all this means in detail. The right. one thing that I find really, really concerning from the North Korean system stability perspective is this undoing of the teachings of Kim Il-sung, you, you know, the arc of unification. Yep is one thing I found so many quotes just yesterday I don't know by accident actually I read some of the propaganda materials from North Korea you know anecdotes and aphorisms from mm. Kim Jong-il song and I mean this is not a minor thing the whole country has been scattered with monuments to what the leaders said about unification and about the three principles and about yep. this uh Koryo federation and, yeah well, let me ask you then, Rudiger, if, if all that you've said is correct about uh, North Korea de-risking itself and, and uh, Kim Jong-un's new attitudes towards uh, unification and pan-nationalism, if, if, if that's all correct, what are some things that we could either expect to see uh, or expect to not see uh, in the rest of this year? I do believe that we will see a continuation of this de-risking strategy. Uh, my, my fantasy is probably not good enough to anticipate the next move. Mm. But I'm pretty sure, uh, since this is such a such a fundamental change in you know undoing many of the measures that have been taken in the past thirty years, you yeah. stopped me expanding on that because it's it's really such a long list, right? And the more yeah, you yeah. think about it, 
the more new things will pop up. Ah, oh, yeah, that was this and that was that. So there are still many options, I think, uh, where Kim Jong-un could continue his de-risking strategy. I think we will also see more of a specification of the new relationship towards uh, South Korea. Frankly, and uh, I'm just talking about the theoretical option, don't misunderstand me. Mm. The road is now open for a diplomatic normalization with South Korea, because if it's a foreign country, yeah, of course, it means it means you can now invade them like you can theoretically invade any foreign country. But it also means that you can open diplomatic relations. Now, I know Japan and the United States are foreign countries and there are no diplomatic relations between them and North Korea. So being a normal country in itself is not really a sufficient condition, but it's a necessary condition. So far, North Korea argued this is not a foreign country. So how, how can we establish an embassy? Now, this is a possibility. And I'm not saying this is going to happen this year, but who knows? And let's mm. not forget, we mentioned this, uh, the tail wagging the dog, right? Kim yeah. Jong-un trying to manipulate and manage his alliance with Moscow and Beijing. Right. And I think he needs to keep them busy and interested. And one way of doing so is making surprising overtures to the enemies of Beijing and Russia, mm. trying mm. to make them to make him a better counteroffer. And that would imply talking to the U.S., to Japan and to South Korea, as unlikely as it sounds right now. But yeah, for this kind of strategic chess game, I think it does make sense. And again, we have precedent for that. So I have no idea what's going to happen specifically. I'm as curious as everybody else, yeah. but I'm pretty sure that this is going to be a very interesting year. And if I may say that, <laughs> in a way, you know, I've been doing this North Korea watching for such a long time, and I kind of yeah. lost my interest a little bit. Now it's back. I'm I'm nice. interested again. I'm really fascinated by what's going on uh, from a from an academic perspective, kind of a neutral objective perspective. And we now have a fantastic, fascinating new dynamic on the Korean Peninsula that will hopefully remain peaceful. Of course, there's always the specter of a military conflict. I don't want to exclude that. No. And I certainly hope that this will not be one of the events in 2024. But yes. I think there are many other things that we can expect that are less destructive. So. Yeah, I, I agree. It's sure to be an interesting year. It's not going to be boring here on the Korean Peninsula. And let's hope indeed that it remains peaceful. I want to thank you once again, Rudiger Frank, for coming back on the NK News podcast. And hopefully we'll do it again uh, in the future to, uh, to look back at uh, what we've talked about today. Listeners, you can find Rudiger Frank on Twitter at rfrankvienna. Thanks again. It's been a pleasure, Jacko. Thank you. Welcome to a new realm of insights into the Korean Peninsula. At Korea Risk Group, we delve deep into the complexities of North and South Korea, offering bespoke analyses that empower decision makers. Whether you're in government, business or academia, our tailored solutions provide clarity in an opaque region. Let our team guide your strategy with data-driven insights and on-the-ground intelligence. Step into a world of informed decision-making and visit careerriskgroup.com today. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius Gabby Magnuson who cuts out all the extraneous noises awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. <laughs>